This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefstetz Podcast. My guest today is Michael Daybar, who you know from television, movies, records, and radio. Now he has a new documentary, streamable on Amazon Prime. Who do you want me to be, Michael? Well, who do you want me to be, Bob? I want you to be your most entertaining self, which you normally are. I'm not that worried. <laughs> but let's, let's start. How did the documentary come into being? Because I'm fabulous, and I'm uh, I'm doing a TV show, um, and a guy called Josh Weinstein, brilliant comedian and filmmaker, and he comes up to me and he says, you know, I've been watching your stuff, and I just read your ex-wife's book, and I want to do a documentary on you, <laughs> basically. That's Miss Pamela, who wrote the I'm With the Band, you know, which is a fabulous book, and he did that. And for the next two or three years, we shot amazing stuff. And the interesting thing about it was I didn't look at a frame of it until it was done. So he had that trust. Why I did that, I have no idea. Well, you know, you want to reduce your anxiety, but that begs my next question, which I was going to ask. Are you happy with the finished product? I'm just absolutely so happy about it because I'm seeing people that I love, you know, saying these wonderful things and certainly some sort of – descriptively uncool things but it's it's all part of the thing you know it's all part of this wonderful i don't want to be worshipped i just want to be understood and seen and you know a guy who stayed there who's been deliberate and delivered uh, what was necessary and i think that that's very good for people to see you know after 50 odd years of it so what do you want people to see what image do you want to present or what identity do you want to press, uh, present in life, whether it comes across in the documentary or not? Well, whatever it is, it has to be the truth. I mean, as an actor, as a singer, whatever, as a husband, as a father, um, 
the truth is everything. If I'm not honest about it, if I, if I told stories, like for instance, my childhood was very traumatic, you know, in that I went to these absurd, masturbatory, hypocritical, aristocratic boarding schools and all the pedophilia in the world that you know about, which is a British institution. Um, you know, I, I went through and I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to tell people, you know, what happened to me and how I would traverse these things and change these things and transition from that, this marquee, into a working class hero. Because when I left those schools and went to London and went to drama school, rock and roll. Rock and roll was the aristocracy. And that, you know, a marquee meant nothing. Mick Jagger would get a better table in the restaurant than Bill Wyman than, than Prince Charles, shall we say. Was, you know, so it was a, I had to reinvent myself every couple of years. Okay, let's start at the end. As we're all on the downward slope in terms of past our median age, do you feel comfortable with what you've accomplished or did you want more? And is there something you do or do not want to do in the remaining time you left, whether it be 30 years or 30 minutes? Fantastic question. Um, A, I have no regrets. B, I have no dreams that I haven't dreamt. And C, there are no nightmares anymore in my life. I've achieved something in myself that is important. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not number ones, and it's not smash movies, and it's not a series that runs forever. It's not Emmys. It's, all of these things mean nothing to me. The only thing that means anything to me at all is enjoying myself, expressing myself in any way that I can. I'm 72. I have a 29-inch waist. Well, you certainly are trim. I know that from interacting with you live. <laughs> but the fact that you are, let's, you know, it's a bogus institution, but it's a pinnacle. The fact that you're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, does that bother you? Not in the slightest. I don't believe it. Unless the MC5 gets into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, then I'd be pissed off. How did you develop, which comes through at the end of the documentary, this perspective that Nothing really matters. Not really a nihilist, but saying, don't get hung up in legacy. Don't get hung up in what it means. Just move forward. Try to enjoy yourself, certainly within a moral framework. How did that come about? Well, I realized that am ambition was toxic. So therefore, trying to you know, reach scale heights that don't exist is a fucking stupid endeavor. That's why. Okay, but you're someone who certainly had peaks in your career, even starting uh, with To Serve With Love when you were not even 20 years old. Yeah. But how do you s make a living, and certainly in entertainment where it's hard, and you sustained over decades without having ambition? Well, it's not ambition. The, the word itself is, is useless. It's this sort of desire to go further. Well, it's not that corny to me. All I ever did was what was in front of me, and I did it well, and I did it again. If you go, if you complexify that concept of a trajectory of your career, then you are going to fool yourself. You know, I believe in the moment. Great artists can only deliver the goods in the moment. You can't calculate what you're going to do when, when the guy says action or the producer said sing. You know, I would just free myself of it and somehow a, it's a, it's a metaphysical thing. It's a feeling of, of confidence. That's very different from ambition. Okay, but one thing we know about you, you've, you've really hung in there. Most people had a window and they're done. And so I always analyze this with people. What do we know? They're very talented people who never made it. So at most 50% is talent. 
The other 50% is amalgamation of a number of things, hooking yourself up with the right people, but being able to connect with people such they like you. You're a very endearing, likable guy. Whatever the image of the rocker is, is someone who meets you personally, is that something you're conscious of? Is that something you wanted to achieve? Do you understand that it's paid dividends? That is just such a great question. I've been asked so many dumb questions. Listen, um, my currency is my charm. And was that inborn or how did you develop your charm? I didn't develop it. I was born with it. I never thought about it. I just realized that to make people feel at ease, right, and amused and maybe entertained and maybe even, you know, desired, I realized that that was the key to go further. I mean, I've, I've, I've spiritually hoard myself all these years in a sense, you know, it's been a calculated uh, seduction and I am a seducer and, uh, and I made it uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't make it like it was sort of demonic vampiric vibe. It was something that I wanted to make people feel at, a, at home because I never had one. My father was in jail and my mother was in the loony bin. So any you know, situation I found myself in, I had to create a calmness, a funness, a, a sexiness that would attract what I wanted. A lot of times that goes hand in hand with a chameleon personality. Now, for someone like me on the outside, it looks like you have a singular personality, but did you also find yourself adjusting your behavior for the situation? Well, when you understand what chameleon means, which is you change your skin in order to you know, settle into the environment that you find yourself. David said, to, David Bowie said to me, I am not a chameleon. I did exactly the opposite. I didn't change the color of my skin to fit into the forest. I did quite the opposite. I changed my skin when I was in the forest to, to cement, you know, and that, I, I agree with. The chameleon vibe is weakness to me. Fitting in was never my thing. <laughs> I wanted to get, I did, wanted to fit out. I wanted to create something new. So there was nuanced and loving and, and sexy and, uh, and in the moment. You know, most people live, have a script and they live by the script. They're not even that character. Okay, let's start at the beginning, which you certainly do in the beginning of your documentary, where there's long history going back hundreds of years to the derivation of your blood lineage and title. Please describe that. Well, it was 800 years ago, and Guillaume de Bar was fighting the Germans, and <laughs> the king of France at the time was, uh, you know, being pursued by three or four monsters in, in silver armor, and Guillaume de Bar killed them. As a result, he was given a title, the Marquis de Bar, and hence, uh, you know, here I am. <laughs> you know, okay, but you know, how does that sustain for eight hundred years? Well, you know, Europe is very different from Glendale. <laughs> yeah. So that history, you know, in uh, the fourteenth, um, fifteenth century, uh, we were kicked out of France. The Huguenots. It was a religious thing. They went to Nova Scotia. They went to England. They went to Ireland. So it spread across the globe, Australia, and a lot of my you know, other marquees. I'm the twenty seventh. Uh, you know, were cartographers, were, uh, you know, people that were searching. It's all about the search, it seems, in my life. Well, let's, let's, go, let's go back to the blood lineage. So there have only been 27 marquees, and you are one of them. That's right. 
how does one get to be a marquis? Obviously, it's blood lineage, but is it the oldest son of the oldest son? How does it work? Yes, it's the son, the oldest son. It's the you know the classic sort of um, honorary vibe is the oldest son. But how it continued is, you know, when this guy was given this land uh, in France and he built his you know, castle, and he lived in that, and then his son, and then his son, and then his son. What's extraordinary to me is, you know, we went from swords to Les Pauls. <laughs> okay, but theoretically, your son is the 28th Marquis de Sade? Uh, they they bar, excuse Bob, me. I just love the fact that you slipped into Sade. <laughs> Freudian who, slipped who I, there. Who, by the way, I adore de Sade. I'm writing a musical about de Sade. Okay, but talking about Debar, your son is the 28th? He actually, I'm the 26th, he's the 27th, to be honest. And Nick other, other than the title, anything go along with that? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely not. Although, you know, there was an enormous amount of money there, uh, you know, for some wonderful reason. And I, all of this was paid. My education, which was considerably expensive. Well, 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 well let's slow down a little bit because we'll get to there and you're never at a loss for words. So tell your father is the twenty fifth Marquis. Yeah. Uh, how? Where? What are his circumstances? How does he meet your mother? He met. You know, he'd already been married four times. He, he met her in a in a uh, club. You know, she was a dancer, which you know the classic quote I'm doing. Um, a good time girl, and he met her, and she was seventeen, and he was fifty, and they had me, and I was a bastard till I was thirty. Okay, two questions. He had no sons before that? No. And did he have any other children? No. And what happened when you were 30 to legitimize you? Oh, I was legitimized by Sidney Poitier, Bob. (laughs) 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 You know, um, he, uh, what happened was they got married because of a a legal situation. She was bonkers. She wanted to get out of the institution. She was severely ill and dying. So he married her. It's a really yeah, 30 man. years later, they actually got married. I got a letter. Take this. You'll love this. I got a letter from the lawyers saying, well, Michael, you're not a bastard anymore. <laughs> Is that and you said, I still awesome? am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, you're wrong. Are you kidding? Um, and I thought, wow. And I, uh, this letter was so symbolic to me. I kept it. One of the very few things I've kept because I don't like having drawers full of like old shit, you know, that is, you know, has such a power over one. I like to do it now, you know. But that particular document I found amusing. Okay. You are born. Are your parents together at that point? Oh, no. No, no, no. He disappeared pretty soon. You know, she had the baby. She didn't want the baby. Uh, she went mad. She was a stripper, you know, and she went to uh, an institution of schizophrenia. I was raised by her friends. This is what happened. Showbiz, right? So the girls that surrounded that world took care of me until I was eight. I was put down to these boarding schools when I was one years old, and they looked after me until I was eight. Now, looked after me, one has to think about, because... I, you know, they were obsessed with Oscar Wilde, Aubrey Beardsley, and that whole, you know, romantic early 1900s thing. Don't ask me why. My father is in an opium den smoking, you know, opium with Chinese sailors in London by the Thames. So you can imagine all these influences and confluences were so extraordinary. And then to be taken and put into this absolute 
absolutely military, autocratic, crazy institution was a, a surprise. Okay, let's talk about from zero to eight. So how many of those years is your mother in the picture around? In and, in and out, Bob, in and out. You know, she'd be in there six months out for a few weeks, have a, you know, a, 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 you know, she'd freak out, she'd go back and come out. And, you know, I mean, I, I forget her many times. I have no memory, really, of, of relating to her at all. Okay, so you say you stayed with her friends. Would you go from house to house? No, I'd go from city life? to city. I'd go really? from city to city because they were working girls. So and what about school? Fuck school. I read, I read everything. I was reading fucking, you know, Aristotle when I was very, you know, a baby. I mean, I read a lot. And that's what happened when I went to school, Aeschylus, everything, Kierkegaard, every, you name it. I would read it because I had to stay there in the vacation. The vacation, everybody, you know, went home. Okay. So your father, he did have money before he oh, yeah. blew it. Yeah, he and, had money, yeah. And so you're saying it's a tradition in the movie that when you're born, they put away money for boarding school. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, it's exactly what happened. The trustees of the Debar estate, for every child, you know, the, the eldest child, the only child, they had to, um, I went to the schools he went to. Yeah, Claremont Preparatory School and Repton in Derbyshire. Derbyshire was Wuthering Heights, you know. I mean, it was literally that foggy, smoggy, damp, depressing, melodramatic, gray clouds, um, which was completely the opposite to the sequence of the beautiful girls that I'd been raised by. So it was, you know, it was like some you know, glam rock Mowgli, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it was disney Okay, so let's play out your father's story. So he's in the opium den. How does he go to jail and how does he lose all his money? Embezzlement. Uh, he went in, to, in there because he a brilliant guy, you know, and he embezzled an awful lot of money and they busted him and away he went for, you know, 10, 12 years. So you're in boarding school with the aristocracy. What's your experience? Hypocrites. Privileged. Very, very interesting that we are now exploring these concepts in the United States. But then um, the white aristocratic upper class, because of the landowners and the, and the slaves, essentially, um, and I despised it because I was 13, 14, and I, I had Sonny Boy Williamson and, uh, and that whole oppression of the blues, and it fitted perfectly into where my head was at. It was a, it was a horrible experience, but I... Detached myself, Bob. I detached myself. It was almost like somebody else was living it. It was just information. I didn't get emotional about it. Okay, a couple of things, though. Uh, I grew up in the melting pot suburbs, and I went to college where 45% of the people were from prep school. And irrelevant of their identity, what it taught me was how to interact with those people. Exactly. So I believe there must have been lessons you were taught however difficult it was to learn them, that put you ahead of a lot of the average people. Absolutely. I mean, I was my own teacher in a way. You know, I would observe. It, you know, Krishnamurti's whole thing is, you know, observe, don't judge. So I could see these dreadful things going on, but I could also see a great discipline and a great wit from the British, you know, and um, a charm, all of those things. I, I, I copped and I, I included in my own personality. 
So I, I learned a tremendous amount from the from the hypocritical stance of these British aristocrats because honestly they were titans of industry. There were royal, you know, royals in there, presidents of other countries' children. It was a really amazing. It's like living in Bel Air, I would imagine. So any of these people ever track you down after the fact? Oh yeah, as soon as I hit the you know the screen, it was like, oh hello, Michael, remember me? I'm Gilbert. You remember Gilbert? I was the goalkeeper in the football team. It was marvelous. Fuck off. Okay, so there was money for boarding school. Was there also money for university, assuming you went? No. No, just for boarding school. 16, I quit. I got out. I ran away. Uh, that was it. I didn't go back. I, I went to London. And I. what happened was I went to London to stay with a, a friend of mine um, who I'd met um, God knows how, but she, she, uh, she was an actress and she said, you should go to drama school. Um, and I did. I went, I got 500 bucks. I did a commercial, pounds. I, got, I did a commercial somehow. An agent, Hazel Malone, got me this commercial. I had 500 pounds. I gave the school 100 pounds for the, you know, and I did a monologue, a Hamlet monologue, and they let me in and I got a scholarship and it all fell into place. I started to play punks on BBC television, um, and then, you know, To Serve With Love came. I was only 17. Okay, so how exactly did you get that part? Well, Columbia Pictures, you know, some executives came to our drama school, and we all were there, and we all got up there and did our speech, our monologue, you know, and they picked about eight kids out of the uh, drama school class that I was in, and away we went to Pinewood Studios and Three months with Sidney Poitier, uh, you know, with Sean Connery doing Doctor No in the next soundstage. It's crazy. Okay. That movie becomes a big success, both the movie and the title song. Does that go to your head? It went below my waist. That that goes to another topic, okay? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Even at this late, you're quite the dashing gentleman. Mm. And certainly when one looks at your pictures from that era, you are a very attractive man. A, were you aware of that? B, did it pay dividends? C, did you use it to your advantage? Yes to the latter. Um, The currency was beauty. Cheekbones are terribly important in 1966, Bob, <laughs> which is the title of my book, Anti-Biography. Um, you know, look, it's all about seduction, the whole thing. You think Julie Christie didn't seduce directors? You know, well, I was Julie Christie, you know, or Terry Stamm, maybe. You know, I mean, I knew the physical beauty at that time because England was becoming that, you know, the, the androgyny and the, and the velvet and this polka dot on the sidewalks in Chelsea and King's Road and Carnaby Street and the Beatles and the Stones, etc. That was my life. And I wanted to be as gorgeous as Nereev and as, you know, and sing like Muddy Waters. Okay. Now the Beatles broke in 64 in America, really the end of 62 and 63 in the UK. To what degree were the Beatles big and were you influenced by them? What were you influenced by in that era? Their hair. Well, the hair was the hair and the collarless co- jackets cannot be underestimated. No, I'm not but, underestimating them. I'm but, telling you symbolically, that's what changed my life was their hair. Okay, just so I know, were you a big music fan before the Beatles? Huge. The blues. 
at school, this guy, Steve Thompson, I remember his name. He said, listen to this. I said, who is it? It's John Lee Hooker. I said, I know a lot about hookers, but, you know. So he plays this to me and boom, 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 you know, one chord. I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It really got me, you know, absolutely excited. And I took that with me to London. Now, at the same time, so was Ronnie Wood (laughs) and Keith and everybody else and Keith Ralph from the Arbor, so on and so forth. You know all about that. Um, and it caught me, man. It was like a absolute, you know, fever of of music. Once the To Sir With Love thing happened, I went to every club every night, Terry Reed, Georgie Fame, Chris Farlow, you name it, every night, and met them, you know. And I went to school with Mitch Mitchell. So Mitch Mitchell says, hey. I once stood in a line at Ken Scott's house waiting for the bathroom with Mitch Mitchell. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but this guy, he was the sweetest guy. And we're in drama school together. Oh, yeah. You know, really sweet guy. And he says to me, hey, Michael, I've got this kid, this black guy, and he's like really good. He's like left-handed, and he's, he's playing the marquee tonight. You want to come down there? And I went down there, my life changed, like everybody else. And the first two roses, Pete Townsend and, and Beck, you know that story, I'm sure, Clap, and your listeners do, Claps, and everybody was there. Every single guitar player was in that front row, and the next day they all got perms. Okay, at what point do you, you're an actor. At what point do you decide my avenue is music? Well, the rhythm and the the lifestyle of being in rock and roll was so much more attractive than going into repertory theater and doing Much Ado About Nothing. I wanted to do Much Ado About a Lot. <laughs> I wanted to go to America. I wanted to sleep with, you know, the, uh, you know, the Liberty woman. <laughs> I mean, I was just obsessed on an Elvis level because Elvis was the guy for me, you know. And I, I just couldn't believe this guy with eye makeup in, you know, in the 50, whatever it was, and singing JLS Ryan. Oh, my God. Got to get it. And then with the, the androgyny of, of Brian and Anita and all that whole thing was just too seductive to me. And I had this girl, Wendy, my first wife, who we looked very uh, the same, the same hair, same clothes. And we would cause such a thing at parties, you know. We'd make out. We'd make love. I mean, it was very in front of men you know the audience and i've done that ever since <laughs> okay so you're infatuated with the scene and the music when do you pick up a guitar and say i have to learn this i have to learn how to play i did a nude musical in london called the dirtiest show in town and i played an androgynous rock star called rose and andrew lloyd Webber came to it he was doing jesus christ superstar with tim you know and uh, I sang the demos. And he said, that's good. He said, you got any songs? And I said, oh, songs. I got for hundreds of songs. I didn't have any songs. I was always playing guitar. And he said, come to my apartment and uh, you, perhaps you can uh, entertain us. It's rock and roll music. Because he was an aristocratic guy. So I could easily fit into that, you know, genre, that vibe, Mathieu. And I went home and I wrote a song called Will You Finance My Rock and Roll Band? And he did. Okay, Andrew Lloyd Webber himself financed your band. Well, he got me with Deep Purple Records. He got me a record deal. Okay, Uh, just a little bit slower. Prior to that evening at Andrew Lloyd Webber's, how long had you been playing the guitar? Three weeks. Okay, and you go and you play. There's no band. No. And what is Deep Purple Records? Deep Purple Records was 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 Purple's records. Purple, the band Deep Purple. They okay, had this, Deep Purple yeah. had their own label in the. They UK. had their own, you know, the, yeah. 
They had their own label. Um, and Ian Gillen had sung for Andrew on the, on the you know. Uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. Exactly. So I'd sung the demos. So uh, Andrew. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You sang the demos for Jesus I, Christ Superstar? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. After him seeing me in this this nude musical, Andrew and Tim. Tim took my band, but that's another story. So I, I get this vibe. I sing for him. I had no idea. I thought a PA was a personal assistant. I had no clue about how this whole band thing worked. But he put me with Purple Records, and they were great to me. John Coletta and Tony Edwards and Ian Gillen, you know, and Deep Purple thought I was cool. And uh, we put a band together, put a, a note in the, in the Melody Maker looking for erotic musicians. <laughs> this is how I worded it. And they showed up and I took the first four skinny guys and away we went, Silverhead. Okay, you kind of poo-poo uh, Silverhead in the movie, but there are some significant Silverhead fans. Oh, yeah. I, I you know... I don't really poo-poo the band. I, I really uh, feel that the band could have gone a lot further if I hadn't been so messed up on cocaine. That's really was the negative. The band was fantastic. I mean, we had nights that were we were the best band in the world, and I think that's true of any musicians that are listening to this. Any band is capable of being the best band in the world on any given night. I believe that to be true. And we were sometimes, but I was distracted. By other okay, things. how did your love affair with cocaine begin? I consider the beginning of my coke habit was as important to me as the earring that Keith Richards wore. Very was, significant. Yeah. It was to you, it is, because you, you understand the symbols of rock and roll. But it was de rigueur to be the thinnest and the most stoned person in the room. And that's what I did. And that's what I was. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't, you know, uh, go so well with people that are living with you and working with you and composing with you and producing with you because I was late for everything. I didn't show up. All of that bullshit. All of that sort of just obvious rock and roll stuff, which is I, I despise, you know, because you're wasting people's time and lives. But I, beginning, it was like anything, it was fantastic. And me and my... Wendy, my girlfriend, my wife subsequently, um, were, you know, monkeys on coke. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it got out of hand. Anything that owned me was, I thought was dreadful. The last two years, I was only getting high for seven years. The last two years were hopelessly uncool, you know, with Led Zeppelin and that whole dark period of Zeppelin, which I was part of. Um, and then I, in 81, I go, stop it. I looked in the mirror. I think vanity got me sober. Okay, but let's go back to the initial days. Cocaine is not cheap, and you're living this peripatetic career or lifestyle. Is money just never an issue? There's always enough money coming in? I could get anything for free. Literally. The nature of uh, being prominent is people give you things right. for free, but did you also ask for things? At 4 a.m. on the third day. You know, I mean, but I never, I never really had to do that. It, clothes, where we lived, all was provided by very wealthy people that wanted to be around rock and roll. You know, I mean, we were toys. We were prop stars. How's that? Okay. And now you get off drugs in 1981? Mm-hmm. June 19th. 
How did you get off it? I stopped. Um, Danny Goldberg, who you, I'm sure you know, right? Um, who is my dearest friend. I'm godfather to his children. And I met him through Zeppelin. And he realized I was getting just out of control because he was with me through the Zeppelin years. And um, he said, my, my dear friend, Paul Fishkin. Do you know Paul Fishkin? I've Paul, met Paul. He's a beautiful man uh, to this day. On every day of my birthday, as it were, you know, of sobriety, I, I speak to Paul. A uh, beautiful man again. And uh, he was with Stevie Nicks and he wasn't using Coke and he wore shades. And I thought, this is for me. <laughs> you know, and it took me to a meeting and, and I, I just stopped. I, there was no rehab in that time. I mean, I was a pariah on a rock and roll level, Bob. You know, I was, I was a leper. Okay. So you stop overnight, but you, you do go to meetings. Oh, God. I, w- I went to two meetings for the first 10 years a day. I mean, I would. And you still go to meetings today? I do not. When I did cons- you stop? Uh, about 20 years ago. I consider my radio programs meetings. Okay. Do you ever feel the desire for substances? No, never. Absolutely not. The only substance I, I want is, you know, love and honesty and romance. And, but anybody who has been, uh, had a love affair with drugs or alcohol, even if you can physically stop, mentally, it's very difficult. If for no other reason, you don't have this in your life, and what are you going to do with all this time? You substitute something. You substitute the, your, that guitar, that song, that role. You know, I work, have worked constantly my whole life. I mean, look at my MDB. It, you know, it's massive. It's 150 hours of American television and 40 movies and 20 albums. You know, so I worked. Uh, the, the, then the drug became, how can I be every second involved in something spectacular? And it worked. I mean, I have been. <laughs> so how did Silverhead end? Badly. Uh, I, you know, we were in London. We'd done, you know, massive tours. I think we toured constantly 280 shows a year for two or three years. We, I was just exhausted and skinny and strung out. And, you know, I'd met Miss Pamela and I was already married to somebody else, to Wendy, as I alluded to earlier. And America. So I wanted to leave the band and go to America and see what So happened. you literally pulled the, uh, pulled the ripcord yourself. I did. The band were hired by the record company and the management. And, uh, you know, they were on salary and, you know, I was the guy. And I, I just said, I just can't do this anymore because I wasn't used to, you know, there's two albums made and we could have done a third and that could have been huge. But I didn't know anything about that. I was an extremist. I dealt with it right then. I said, I don't want to do this. I want to go to America. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Prior to going to America, you marry Wendy, your long-term girlfriend. How do you decide to uh, tie the knot? I think out of a question of honor of giving her the name. We, we were together seven years, and she said in the documentary, she's passed away since then, God bless her. Um, I think it was giving her that, you know, that marquise, you know, she became a marquise. She was always obsessed with being a, you know, a marquise, which is the feminine part of, of a marquis. And uh, I think, you know, subconsciously, I was doing it in order to give her that name. Okay. How do you break it to her very shortly after you're married that you're in love with someone else and you want to get divorced? And to what degree did that affect her life thereafter? She became a professor emeritus of science and wrote five books. So she did pretty good. Um, immediately of me leaving, she had an affair with uh, Eno, who I adored. It's amazing, you know, you know uh, even then. And um, so she was cool. I mean, she was very cool. It was all cool. It was okay, you know, all right. So you've met Miss Pamela, the queen of the groupies. Great, go do that. And uh, I'm going to do this. And did she ever get married and have children? Yes. Okay, so she lived a full life. Yes. Okay, so tell us how you meet Miss Pamela, the GTOs. <laughs> well, I'm in New York, um, and there's a movie, you know, I was with the Warhol vibe, and, and uh, there was a movie being made, and Keith Moon was going to play this role in this movie, um, which Miss Pamela was in. So they, you know, Keith went missing. What a shock! And they were looking for a rock and roll guy. So who was in town? And I think it was Wayne Forte. You know Wayne Forte. <laughs> I heard from him today. Wow. Well, I love this guy. <laughs> He's a pretty good friend. Oh, fucking love him. Um, but so He's an agent. Was, yeah, at that it, time, really represent Bowie, a million other people. Everybody, he was the exactly. king. He, he, he put me in the power station. Um, but so he says, okay, get this one, the, the, the lean, mean MDB, get him. And they did, and I went and made this movie, and I remember I'd been up for two or three days as usual, and I walked on that set, and Betty Grable was standing you know, with her back to me. She was in this little 40s swimsuit, and... I just felt it, you know, and she turned around 
And I fell in love with her, and I, and I was with her for the next 12 years. Okay, you know, just talking about her for a second, what do we know? She would be a self-described groupie who Frank Zappa ushered to a recording career with the other women and girls together outrageously. But when you met her, what was the... What was going on in her life? Did she, she symbolize? Have- you know, it, it's a great question. She symbolized America to me, Bob. She was America to me. See, I was schooled on the movies and the music, so she was this absolute beaming um, human. You know, it's with with the smile. You've seen that smile. You've seen the photographs, the GTOs. I mean, they were amazing. Zappa had got hold of them and made a record that Rod was on, and Lowell George, and you name it. So she had, and I adored the, the resume, <laughs> you know, to be perfectly candid. Okay. You know, a lot of times people get involved with musicians for not only the status, but the money and to be taken care of. Did she have a pot to piss in at that time? Oh, no. She, she lived by making Jimmy Page cowboy shirts, you know, which really meant, you know, thousand dollars for their shirt you know Graham she was big big uh, a friend of Graham's and and they just existed these girls and they did a couple of gigs and Frank put them on salary you know um and and she hung around with Jim Morrison and Mick Jagger and you know she was at Altamont with Mick I mean and all of these things made sense to me in the great puzzle that I was trying to piece together that she was very much a part of that you know, just just mythologically, uh, as well as the sexiest woman I ever met, yeah, in the Betty Grable fucking swimsuit. Okay, this begs this begs the question: You were just recently married. Was she involved with someone when you met? Oh, Bob, <laughs> that's a therapist question. Um, no. No, no, no. That wasn't the scenario at all. We we left. Uh, you know, we 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 agreed that to part. It was very, very pure. We love her to this day. My wife now, Britta, adores. They adore each other, and um, it it was it was pretty soulful. The whole thing because I was sober, you know. Oh, okay. So you do this little movie, then you go back to the UK, right? Right. I go back on the road, you know, and uh, she goes to LA and she was going out with Waylon Jennings at the time. Uh, I say going out, whatever the phrase would be. Um, And I, you know, was doing a week at the Whiskey Go-Go in a month. So when I got to LA, uh, I, I called her up. I said, you know, can we get together? She said, no, we can't. So I knew her best friend. I told her best friend, I'm going to stand on top of the Hyatt house the riot house, and I'm going to jump off the fucking roof unless she comes over. And she, so the girlfriend tells Miss Pamela that she said, I'm not coming over. <laughs> and, and she said, but I'll go see him tomorrow. She came over that morning, and we were together ever since. Until my divorce. Oh, okay. You were obviously smitten for when you were making the movie. Very much. When she walks in the door at the Hyatt house... What does it take to close her? That's so genius. Um, we think the same. We have the same feelings, both above and below the waist. We love the king. And we just click, man. There was this rock and roll kind of blood in our veins. And they, we eventually, her blood was in my veins and my blood was in her veins. And we wore leopard skin. Okay. Now it's... After that, that you 
decide you're done and you're going to move to L.A.? Yeah. I mean, I arrived in L.A. with $200 and a hairdryer. And your plan, other than being with Miss Pamela, was? Conquer the world. But but a little bit more granular. You only have uh, $200. But I knew that, you know, I would be taken care of. See, the thing is, Bob, this life of mine, I have expected to be looked after uh, and cared for. I've expected it. I've, I've had it. I, I knew there was something about it that was seductive and, and fun, and I was always good and cool. And I, I, you know, I went to see her parents. I was in a fur coat, a silver jumpsuit. I had Butler Southern Comfort here, Butler Southern Comfort there. And I walked in, and they, her father was a staunch Republican working at Budweiser, and her mother was just from Kentucky and a nice woman. And, uh, and I just loved them both so much, <laughs> the parents. And I fell in love with the whole family, and I just slipped well, into But it. did they fall in love with you right yes, away? Yes, he loved me right away. He loved me. And he was a Republican racist. And, you know, you just nod your head at appropriate moments, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and, and seduce the family. What comes first when you're in L.A., acting or music? Music, because what happened was this massive Coke dealer um, I met, and Miss um, Pamela immediately got a soap opera in New York. She went off to New York, so I'm, I'm, I couldn't drive. I didn't have any money. I didn't even know how to pay bills, uh, you know. And this Coke dealer sort of took me under his wing, <laughs> as it were, and I lived with him in Benedict Canyon. I couldn't drive and all of that, so I was kind of stuck. But um, he introduced me to Michael Monarch. Michael Monarch was the guitar player in Steppenwolf when he was 17. And he was great. And he said, well, let's put a band together, you know. So we did. And already, quickly, uh, the Coke dealer paid for rehearsals, paid us a, a, you know, a monthly salary, and we just created some songs and we played a couple of gigs and Jimmy came to town um you know the Zeppelin came to town they're all in Malibu all in houses next to each other not talking and I was the conduit between them and uh and, and they came down to SIR to watch us play and Jimmy said you know <laughs> you want to be on the label I said okay how did you know Led Zeppelin well Silverhead was a, a, you know, a tough band that a lot of people in muse, musos, as they say, you know, really like. So we're in a club in Birmingham uh, one night and, and we're playing this great show. There's 11 people in the club. Four of them were Led Zeppelin. Why were they there? Bonzo had a farm 10 minutes from the club and they all happened to be rehearsing. That's how. And B.P. Fallon, the legendary B.P. Fallon, who you may or may not have heard of, is a brilliant sort of Yoda rock figure at the side of Bono and Plant and a lot of it, Mark Bowen. And um, they took us back to the farm after the gig and we stayed there for three days and nights and you can imagine um, that we sort of got it together. Plus, Jimmy had already been with Miss Pamela, so there were connections all over the place. Okay, how do you decide on the name Detective? I, I originally wanted to call it Defective. But <laughs> it was turned down. Um, it had a sort of a searching '40s Humphrey Bogart feel to it that I've always thought was very rock and roll. I thought Bogart was, you know, the shit, uh, you know, and uh, he had that uh, that lighting, that black and white lighting, always appealed to me. And I always thought it was just so powerful to be a private eye, 
to be a detective, to search, to find, to conquer, to suss it out, to, to you know, put the dots together and all of that. It, it just sounded to me powerful and sexy. Okay, so Led Zeppelin has this amazing success. They form Swan Song. Danny Goldberg, their PR person, runs it in the U.S. First album out, Monster, Bad Company. Yeah, okay? yeah. But nothing really after that. Uh, no. Maggie Bell, I think they did a Pretty Things record. But, you know, it was on Led Zeppelin's label. Why did it ultimately not work for you? Vanity labels do not work. Because Atlantic works. Swan Song doesn't work. When Bonzo owns a fourth of you, you got a problem, right? So there was nobody to turn to. That You know, what had happened was... Clearly, Armit, you know, signed the Zeppelin and, and, and gave them a label. And look at the Stones label. Did anybody ever become famous on a Stones label? The Peter Tosh record, I think, was successful. The Tosh was I, the only one. Right. They, but Chris Farlow and all the cats, you know, nonsense. Right. Didn't happen. Well, it's the same thing with us. I couldn't get hold of Jimmy. You know, Jimmy was, uh, you know, shall we say, um, you know, under the weather. And uh, it was very difficult to get hold of him. So he was good. The deal was... Jimmy will produce the record. We waited a year for Jimmy Page. And you give a guy at 24 years old a million dollars, what do you think is going to happen? You know, and I spent it, <laughs> um, as did all of those boys. And um, we were so strung out and, and, and confused and just, you know, and I wanted Stevie Marriott to come in and, and do it because I love Stevie Marriott and Humble Pine. I'm sure you do too. I think he's one of the greats. And that raw rock and roll thing. I didn't really want to do the the sort of the Butch, Bonzo, Zeppelin thing. I wanted it to groove a little more, but um, the band was the band. And I think we lost, because of that year, we lost the really the, the heart of it. And were you, were you happy with the two records that came out on Swan Song? Yes. You know, I was. I thought they were great. I thought they, were, they sound great, you know. But they should. They cost a million bucks. I mean, we spent $300,000 getting a drum sound, Bob. <laughs> it was ludicrous, you know, the money and the, the, the decadence of that time. I mean, we spent most of that recording time in the jacuzzi, you know. Okay, but while you're doing Detective, how many live dates did Detective ultimately do? Everybody we toured with. Kiss. Imagine touring with Kiss and playing to 20,000 kids dressed as Gene and Paul, you know. I mean, every, we played with everyone. Uriah Heep, you name it, you know, and all of these bands, these arena bands. And then at night we'd go play to clubs and have, you know, it would be different. But it was always secondary. It was never primary, you know? And, right. And that's no good for me. And again, too, yeah. How did it end? But, you know, very badly um, and stupid and lame and, you know, shouting and, you know. We had Tom Dowd come in. And there was a guy called John Cougar at the time mm -hmm. and John Mellencamp. And he had a song, I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. Which and they, Pat Benatar actually had a hit with. And yeah. And I turned it down like a schmuck. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so we broke up, you know, like any band. These two records, you know, it sold, but it didn't sell enough to, you know, it didn't make a real dent in the, in the luxury car of rock and roll. And I, um, I just quit. I just said, that's enough. And then I, plus I saw the pistols. You know, I saw the fucking pistols in San Francisco. I was there. And Steve Jones, 
<laughs> you know, I saw the show. I'm in the hotel. They're in the same hotel. Steve Jones coming down the hallway. He goes, hey, Michael, I stole Silverhead album. So this is a pretty good introduction. Into Absolutely. Punk, right? So then I thought, okay, new. Let's strip this down. Let's forget the glamour of the 70s and the, the butch cocaine shop edges of the, you know, the, the late 70s. You know, let's get into this. And I got into that and I met Mike Chapman and he signed me as a solo artist. And what happened? Who produced? What, what happened on Dreamland Records? Mike Chapman produced my record, you know, and I was writing with Holly Knight. We wrote Obsession and, you know, the rest is history on that level. You know, that was number one all over the world. Okay, a couple of questions. Mike was the hottest. He starts his own label. Not one single thing hits. Okay. Eight, eight different acts, Bob. <laughs> eight acts. I bet I could name them. Nothing. But right. then, you know, Shandy, <laughs> Shandy Cinnamon. Shandy Cinnamon. Good, right. good boy. That's fucking genius, you know. And Device, right? Was that one, that one. one I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, Device was Holly Knight. I remember Holly Knight, but I don't remember the name of the band. Yeah, that was the name of the band. But Holly went under right love as a battle. Really of course, of course, you know. of course. So he put me with her. I wrote it, I wrote the words of a session because I was just getting sober. Okay. A little bit slower. How does Obsession, what's the motivation to write a song to begin with? This song came out of the fact that well, I was going to meetings and every other word was Obsession. <laughs> <laughs> but I made it. You remember that movie, The Collector, with Terry Stamp? You I did that? not see oh, it. Such a beautiful movie. It's about a guy who wins the lottery and kidnaps a, the girl of his dreams and brings her back to the country estate. So I, I took that story and put it together with the word obsession. So now obsession is love, sex, whatever. But then it was really written about narcotics. And I just, Holly was sober, is sober. Played a thing, and I say, "Who do you want me to be to make you sleep with me?" You aren't upset. Boom! There it was. Ten minutes. Okay, was it written for the movie it was in, or it just placed in that movie? Danny placed it in it. Danny Gober was the whatever they call it. You know the guy, the music yeah, supervisor, right. right? So he puts it in this with Christopher Atkins playing a Chippendale stance so with Leslie Warren, who I adore to this day. Movie, not a great movie. Song, huge. A&R guy, I want that for my band, and Emotion, and Emotion cuts the song is massive. 21 Okay, minutes. how come and Emotion had the hit, and your version, which is superior, was not? Well, you're very kind to say that. No, no say I, that. I thought that back then. I'm not saying that just because I don't I know, know why. I, I think because it was a, a very new wavy uh, vibe. Uh, you know, it was unthreatening. Our version was dark, you know, but that's uh, why I liked it. Of course. Of course. That's <laughs> why you have Bob Levsett, <laughs> so, you know, because you understand darkness, but in fact, you shine a light in the darkness. But I, I, I just love the fact that working with Holly, because when you work with somebody that precise and that clever and that melodic and that sort of smart and spiritual, you come up with good stuff, you know, and we did, and it was divine. I'd love it. Listen, 27 countries, it was number one, that song. Okay, that begs the question, since you had a deal with Dreamland, who owned the publishing? Mike. So he spent all this money on records. Did you ever get paid? Uh, on Of Obsession? Yeah. Obsession has bought houses for two wives. Okay, so if there's 100% in the song, 50% of it is Holly's. Yeah. Of your 100%, which is 50% of the song, how much do you have? $3 million. 
Not a different question. What percent of the song do you own? Well, you get 25% of the 50%. Okay. Mike gets 50. We got 50. We cut it up. It still made me millions. Wow. So I've been okay since then. I've been okay. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. So does it still rain any coin? Oh, my God, yes. You get a, the Spanish version. You get the reggae version. You get the, <laughs> the flamenco. You name it, man. Who just cut it? Um, Karen O just cut it. You know. Okay, there are a lot of people uh, in our demo who sell the rights. Would you ever sell the rights? Stupid. Don't do that. I agree with you totally, but that's why I'm asking. Keep it. I kept everything. And, you know, and I make a, a, you know, I do good. (laughs) Okay, just to go one step further, if you remember, was your publishing interest cross collateralized on your record deal? Uh, it, it it was not uh, because I you know my Nikki Chin, right? Chapman, Nikki right? Chin is Chapman's yeah, Chitty Chap didn't write a word was on all the songs yeah. So Nikki Chin was a good friend of Peter Grant. Why? British gangsterism. They were both gangsters. Peter Grant drove you know uh, Don Arden around. Don Arden was the Cray Twins guy. Don Arden held Stevie Married out the fucking window for the publishing, if you want to talk about publishing. So I was hip to all of that. I knew Nikki. In fact, Peter, when Zeppelin spit up, Peter said, fuck him, fuck him. You know, and Nikki Chim was the only guy that could tell Peter, say, look, I want to, I, I want to have Michael. And, um, uh, and, he, and he, he gave me, you know, he gave me. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Right, right, right. Peter Rank gave me to Nikki Chin, man. It's a hell of a story, you know, and, and Mike was great. I mean, it was just a brilliant producer. I did a solo record with him, you know, and it was fantastic. It didn't sell. As you said, a dream then was a nightmare. Okay. Since you know some of these characters, to what degree was Peter Grant responsible for Led Zeppelin's success? I think uh, he was responsible for guiding an incredible band. I mean, if you listen to that first record, that first record is the key record in terms of hard rock and roll, and it's dynamic, and it's absolutely so – you're an aficionado. You know full well the impact that Jimmy Page's production was on that. Fuck all the stairway to heaven from that other band and all of these silly you know, excuses. And he I agree it was about the you know, first album. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the first album is what I'm talking about. The first album changed things. Now, Peter took this, said, right, okay – no middlemen, no promoters, fuck off, merchandising, you better fucking put that T-shirt down, you bastard. You've seen it in the movies. It was, that's who he was. He was this gypsy pirate captain who loved, and I'm not exaggerating the word, loved Jimmy Page. It was his son. I mean, he would have, and I've seen him, you know, I love, I was part of that tribe for a little bit, man, you know, and it was exciting exciting beyond belief because it was so violent and it was so dramatic, you know. Okay, now you have continued to create Jimmy Page once past his peak in a couple of forays in the 80s has not. Why do you think that is? When you reach the stratosphere, you want to stay there. So therefore, every time you go out and try and do something, your objective that your modus operandi is to be as good as you were. It's impossible. So you find that out, but you still do it. Now that creates 
uh, a Sturm und Drang in your psyche. And I think that's what happened. But what Jimmy did was not do that for these last 10 years. What he did was he turned to the uh, library and recreated these records. And that's, I think, exactly what he should have done, the beautiful photograph books. You know, I have the deepest respect for Jimmy Page, you know, both as an artist and as a man. He became sober. Okay. And oh, it ends with Dreamland. Then you have Checkered Past. How does that come together? Well, it, it came together um, it, quite quickly in that, um, you know, I, I was – Working with Chapman, that didn't work, but I'm still with Nigel Harrison. So I thought, well, Nigel, let's put some band together. I, I'm only human. The ma album that I made with Mike was a hit in England. We went to England. We played a few shows. I was really, really stoned. Um, this is 1980. Came back to New York, and I was living in New York, and Nigel lived there. So we got Frank Infanti from the original Blondie, Nigel, and Jonesy. Jonesy was in New York strung out, broke, post pistols, Malcolm took all the money, fucked up. Clem, the greatest drummer in the world, <laughs> you know, for me, um, was available. We did one gig at the Peppermint Lounge. We, and all the punks are there, packed, because of Jonesy and the vibe, you know, Blondie and all of us. So we opened with Vacation by the Go-Go's. Okay, you know, I know Kathy Valentine, who, her. that that's her animotion, uh, obsession. So how do you decide to open with Vacation? Because they piss them off. Because it was ballsy and it was like the perfect choice, my idea. You know, oh, we ever wanted vacation to get away. And the punks are going, ah! <laughs> and, and but by the middle of the song, and Steve is like kicking ass and Clem's going wild. It was perfect. It was like some Salvador Dali three chord rock and roll pistols meets Belinda Carlisle. Man, it was, it was just so arty, you know, that they, the, the kids, just went nuts. And the band went, okay. So we go to LA and we get another guitar player, Tony Sales from Tim Machine, Soupy's son. Right. In fact, during, during rehearsals, we, when we got stuck, we'd get Tony to get Soupy on the line and make us laugh so we could carry on with the <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. That's what happened. And, um, you know, Tony was genius, so beautiful looking. And it was a great rock band, great live album sucked. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Okay, so now you've had four record deals. Oh, yeah. In the in the movie, you say that uh, Danny Goldberg says your time is up. Uh, what are you thinking? I disagree, Danny, and I'm going to prove it to you. <laughs> but by, but what happened was my acting career, you know. Uh, and the other, the, of course, the other thing that happened was a little band called Power Station, you know, because what happened was in '84, or 80 something obsession was all everywhere. '85, I'm in Texas with Don Johnson. And he's making a movie, and, and you know, we're okay, all. Okay, how do you become such big buds with Don Johnson? He's because featured in the film. I met him in 72 snorting coke in Hampstead. That's how, in <laughs> London. And I'd known him for years, way before Sonny Crockett. So we, I go to this, you like this. I go to Marshall, Texas. He was shooting The Long Hot Summer, which is the Paul Newman movie. And we're in Marshall, Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner walked in one day with a, with a white towel and a bottle of vodka. Fantastic. So, I get a call from Wayne. Wayne says, what are you doing this summer? I said, I'm enjoying the luxury of being number one all over the world. What are you doing? And he said, this is a band that needs a singer. I said, what band? He said, I can't tell you. I said, oh, I'm mysterious. Okay, uh, will you come to New York and meet this band? And I said, if you send a limo for me and, and, I, you know, and I'm at the Carlisle, yes. He does all of those things. I arrive, JFK, get in the car, go straight to the opposite. <laughs> Up to the 17th floor, Wayne Forte. And John Taylor and Tony Thompson are sitting there looking extraordinarily nervous. They have a six-month tour book. That's hundreds of millions of dollars, Bob. And I go, oh, shit, man. Okay. So this band is number one, Some Like It Hard Indeed. They take me to the studio. They take off Palmer's vocals. I get on the Concord. I fly to London right away, no sleep, I, to meet Andy. Taylor, who really ran that band. So Andy comes in eight hours late, billowing marijuana smoke, two bodyguards. I'm in the control room, you know, you dirty, sweet, and you're my girl, get it on, bang it go. Okay, press the button, let's go shopping. We go shopping. I go to Vivian Westwood, I get $20,000 worth of clothes, I get back on the Concord, I go to New York. I get to New York at the Carlisle, Don's in town. We decide to go to Chinois to have dinner. The phone rings. I pick up the phone. You're out. You're out. I said, can I keep the clothes? <laughs> and they said, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. What do they want to do with them? So they're all in boxes in the thing. 
so I thought this is very symbolic. I kind of casually looked over, you know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, um, and so we go to dinner. You love this. We're at a restaurant, Chinoise. Remember Chinoise in New York? Yeah. I'm so we're in Chinoise. And uh, we're having this, you know, what wonderful meal. And I'm sobbing. And uh, who, who walks in the restaurant? John Taylor. John Taylor walks into the restaurant. He's six tables away. Don Johnson goes over to the table and says, John, can you come outside and sidewalk? And I can talk to you. And uh, John says, well, yeah, all right. And out they go. He comes back to the table 10 minutes later. I don't ask him what went down at all. I don't even talk about it. I was too depressed. Go back to the hotel. 7 a.m. The phone rings. You're back in. What? How come? Because Danny Goldberg had gone to Palmer's people and said, give him more of the merch. Give him more of the fucking merch and MDB. And boom. Phone call. Uh, we need you at noon. Simple as that. Whoa, 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 whoa. A little bit slower. Why did they not want you? No, they didn't want me because Palmer dropped in again. He, he, oh, was, Palmer it, dropped in again. Yeah, That's the part I missed. It was a device. Ah, it was all a scam. I think so. I'll leave it to your listeners. Right. To figure it out. But I mean, duh. Right. You know, right. I'm there. I'm fucking in New York, ready to rock. I'm skinny. I'm lean. I can sing my ass off. And why would that, you know, so that's why, you know, and they knew also, they only had 10 songs and they knew that I came with a bunch of songs, you know? And uh, so with the live thing, it was all about the live. There was so much money involved and live aid. So Palmer said very cleverly, and I respect it, and I love him, and I loved him 10 years before we got high together. I loved his band, Vinegar Joe. You remember that band? Yes. Elkie Brooks. Um, loved his work. Marvin Gaye, gorgeous, brilliant. And, um, and I dropped in, and noon, there I was. And as I go to Astoria Studios in New York, they say, well, you know, there's this big gig in four days. It's kind of a big concert. I said, what's that? They said, Live Aid. I said, that's a big concert. Okay, you know, and I, I remember that moment, you know, because a lot of people say, well, Michael, weren't you terrified about that? And the answer is absolutely not. I was made for moments like that. <laughs> and I sang and I rehearsed and I learned everything, every note, every syllable of Robert Palmer. I sort of did a facsimile of it, but not really, you know, because I sing in a Steve Marriott range and he's sort of down here. Da, da, boo, da, da, boo, da, da. And I'm way above that. So we did, we rehearsed and we did Live Aid. Okay. And you go on tour, you have this great success. Why does the power station not sustain? Oh, because it's so coked out. The, the kids, you know, I was 30 something and John and Andy were 22 years old and they were top of the, the Beatles. I've never seen anything like that. I've played with a lot of, you know, and a lot of um, audiences, but I have never seen that tsunami of sweat and topless teenagers. 20,000 girls screaming their asses off. In fact, the first gig that I did, I walked out in the middle and I felt like Charlton motherfucking Heston as Moses when the Red Sea parts. <laughs> because they all went over to John's side. They all went over to Andy's side. And I'm left with this big trough. Uh, you know, but that was, I didn't worry about that stuff. The one time I got upset was one guy, and I was very wicked about this, but one guy comes up with the Robert Palmer album in the front. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's you always get, one guy. Always one guy. And that's the guy you, uh, you know, obsess about. Uh, not, right, exactly. Of course. Me, you know, but not me. Not me. I kicked him in the face with my capizios, you know, which probably didn't hurt very much because I only weighed like 92 pounds at the time. But he, yeah, he got what he deserved. And, and then once, I, I didn't really hit him, you know, but what happened was the girls around him jumped him. And started to scratch his face, and it was so Fellini, you know. I mean, and that was one of the very first gigs. And John and Andy were overlooking and looking at me, going, "What is happening?" It was amazing episodes, but that was one of them. But the live aid experience, Bob, Bill Graham, who was a monster under anybody's determination. Would you agree? Well, he was fantastical. The finances worked for him, shall we say? He introduced acts and music to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. The problem was he was a monster while he was doing it, you know. And, um, what happened to us was we came on uh, to do the thing and Andy Zamp had blown up. And Bill Graham was screeching, I mean, really screaming at us. I smile my way through. You can look at the thing on, on YouTube, but I'm just grinning from faith, you know, because nothing was going to get in my way. And, and then we get the right amp and Bill Graham, you know, you, you'll never eat lunch in this town again. You know, all this right, crap. Right, all that horseshit. Fuck you. And, uh, you know, God bless you, but get out of my way. And I just sang 10 minutes and it was beautiful. And I enjoyed every fucking minute of it. Okay. When Power Station comes to a close, where does that leave you emotionally? Leaves me in a white Rolls Royce driving to Paramount Studios to audition for MacGyver. That's right. How did that me. how did that opportunity arise? My agent. My agent called me and said they want an assassin for one episode. Do you want to go up to Vancouver and make 10 grand? I said, yeah. And I oh, go Okay, whoa, whoa. How did you get an acting agent? Um, well, everybody wanted me at that time because I spent those five months, six months m making relationships. I got tickets for people in different cities. When I played New York, I got people at the Ritz, you know, a surprise gig, and I made relationships with agents and publicists. I knew I had to think of something to do after this. When I came to LA, I had a lot of people come and see me free. I got the tickets, got them the, at Laminate. The Laminate simply said, get it off. <laughs> yeah, because I would hand them out to girls, but that's another story. So they all come in. So I'd made relationships, but I'm not an idiot. And they, you know, an agent said, I'll take you on. And, uh, and the first gig that they, you know, that I auditioned for was to play Murdoch on MacGyver, which went down very well. And I did it for the next five years. And other, op as you referenced earlier, IMDb credits are very long. How did all these other opportunities come as a result of agent relationships or your work on MacGyver? Both. The agents would say, you know, because I became the de rigueur rock star. So I did that everywhere. Rockford Files, Just Shoot Me, you know, all of it. Uh, I played, you know, rock and roll stars forever. But then I started to get this high cheekbone, Jeremy Irons, bad guy, English cheekbone. You know what I mean? That, right. That, that sort of silhouette. But you didn't mind being typecast. I love being cast. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Who cares what the type is, baby? You know, I just want to be cast. Okay. Uh, so how does it end with Miss Pamela? Well, you know, horrible. Nick was 12, um, oh, it just breaks my heart even to this day. You know, we, we were 
good friends and she's good friends with Britta, my wife. And, uh, but it was very, very painful. But I had to do it. I had to become a singular human being for a while and not depend on everybody. That's what the real trip is. You know, Pama did everything for me. You know, I never, never, as I said before, and I don't say it with any sense of pride or, you know, any of that stuff. I, I just couldn't work the system. And I had to learn. I couldn't drive a car. My son had a few psychological issues, and we put him in a, a beautiful place to work stuff out. And it was way, way, way uh, from me. And I learned to drive in order to see him and be with him. And I started to grow up. And that's what happened. And that's what I learned from uh, my uh, time with Miss Pamela. And she knew that. She knew that I had to break away to become, you know, a man. Then how did she take it? Badly. Weeping. You know. And how long did it take her to get over it if she ever got over it? Nobody ever gets over leaving me, Bob. (laughs) I don't think anybody gets over, no matter even if they're not you, you just make it more difficult. (laughs) No, I've always stayed in touch with people. I don't just drop the thing, you know. I always try, you know, with everyone to uh, ease it. I, I've never been wicked about it. You know, I just have a short attention span. Okay, so how do you end up hooking up with little Stephen and getting your radio show? Checkered Past um, supported Stephen uh, with those five out, you know, those five out of incredible albums he made. And I think it was the second one. And we uh, were supporting him and I got to know him. And I, I just fell in love with his commitment as everybody does, because this guy is the most important guy to me in my life. And I I adore him, you know. And uh, what happened was I had an internet interview uh, show, and I was interviewing Marianne Williamson and Maureen Van Zandt, his beautiful wife, saw it. Andrew Luke Oldham, who was the DJ at Little Stephen's Underground Garage, as you might recall, brilliant man, love him. you know, uh, had to leave for various personal reasons. And Stevie was stuck with who's going to be the morning DJ in New York. And uh, Maureen had seen this thing and said, you know, whispered in Stephen's ear, get him, you know, and he did. And I've been there almost seven years. Wow. And it continues that long because? Because I'm really good at it. What makes you so good? Because I give context. That's a good answer. I have no response to that. Okay. How much acting or how much interest in acting do you have at this point? They pay me a fortune to do the reboot of MacGyver. So I do right. that a couple of times a season. But right now that's moot. You know, I've been working on the uh, two things. One, a book of poetry. Two, The Sadist, which is a musical about Desaad. Okay. So in this long career, what did you learn? Be kind, be cool, be courageous. And now that you've lived through, you know, I, there's a there, there was the Elvis period, and then of course the Beatles started the British invasion and blew up the business. All this sixty years of music history, maybe seventy years. What's your perspective on it now, as opposed to living through it? Oh wow, Bob! Come on, man, <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, my perspective on music now is very much buried in the in the, in the past and bringing that into the present. 
these songs that I play on this radio station that Stephen did the playlist for are mantras, and I treat them as such. I believe that, uh, you know, you keep me hanging on from Vanilla Fudge, uh, reinterpreting the Supremes is a fantastic thing. I love The Temptations. I love Otis Redding. I love John Lee Hooker. But I also love Trent Reznor and, uh, you know, and uh, Jack White. And, you know, we play that and we play new bands. We have introduced a thousand new bands on Little Stevens Underground Garage since its inception. And, you know, playing this music and giving this music, you know, to people as a gift rather than taking, you know, the crown and the, the gold records and stuff. Do I listen to contemporary music? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I'm a huge Billie Eilish fan, obviously. And lyrically, I think that, the you know, black songs matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the rap world is some absolutely incredible dialogue from them. So I'm very fascinated by that. But you, you must re- remember that I'm doing a three-hour-a-day radio program. Yeah, you know, you work your ass off. I don't even know how you do it. I, I don't know how you watch Netflix so much. You do so much work, as I do. You know, I'm always working. and That's the way I live my life. But I don't really spend much time on current music. I really just soak up Otis Redding, you know, and, and give it back to the people. Okay, on Little Steven's Underground Garage, he picks the, the songs that you play? Yes. He, his playlist is static. Every now and then, a, new songs will come in. He has a label called Wicked Cool Records. So he has new bands on that and, and certainly some bands that have, you know, other bands and they create, you know, Clem is in a thousand bands, you know, uh, Clem Buck. And um, he puts out this extraordinary rock and soul music. Um, he's got signed a new artist called Jesse Wagner. So we play new music. You know, I just did a ballad, out of, made a ballad out of Manic in the UK, which, which Stephen produced, which we used an orchestra with that song because of what's going on. Um, to quote Marvin Gaye. So there is a contemporized action, but the, the playlist is very biblical and very clear. Okay, now you made these records for Wicked Cool Records. Uh, that's a fun experience, and there's a certain amount of exposure through your friends and the radio station. Is there any personal plan to try to make that bigger? Well, I, the monetization of the songs that I've written are incredible because of sound exchange, which I'm sure you're aware of. And your listeners, you know, that is a thing that uh, gives you the money from satellite, you know, play. And other internet play. Yeah. And uh, I make a lot because I've done a lot of songs for Stephen, you know, and that yet another reason to love him. Right. Now, in the movie, you also say, I always ask this some creative people because uh, like the ACDC song, A Long Way to the Top, most of them been ripped off and underpaid. But you say you have enough money to get to the end, oh, even yeah. if it stopped today. No, I have had for a long time. Bob. You know, I've, been, <laughs> I've, I've wet my ass all over the years. And, you know, 150 hours of American television, that means somewhere you're going to see me as a maitre d'eau, as a rock and roll, as an assassin in Sweden, you know, if I get $3. But those $3 mount up. And, uh, you know, residuals, royalties, all of these things, my incredible uh, radio experience, you know, I have 5 million listeners, you know, every day, and they buy things from me. And, uh, for, you know, I'm an imposition, have been for quite some time, to not work. Yeah, but then what would you do with yourself? Exactly. And you finally married your girlfriend. What was the motivation there? 
she wanted to be married and I wanted to marry her. It was at the winter solstice. I proposed to her at the Huntington Hartford. It was spectacular. Uh, but because she wanted to get married on the winter solstice, the only place in that day that was open was a, a facility in Compton. <laughs> so we go to Compton, this brilliant black woman married us, and the witness was a young black girl. And it was one of the most unbelievable, nobody there, nobody there, no celebrities, no nothing. Don Johnson wasn't my best man. Gabriel Byrne did not give a bouquet to my wife, none of that. And I could have done all of that, bollocks. But I thought, let's do this. Let's just do this together. Then we went to an English tea restaurant owned by Edmund, who wore a green velvet jacket with slightly ripped on the shoulder. <laughs> but, you know, and gave us the worst sandwiches ever, you know, with a crust cut off. But it was a beautiful day, and I'm so proud to be married to my wife. And uh, we're a great team, especially now, where we've got to be on a good team. Oh, absolutely. In isolation. Uh, thanks so much for telling your story to my audience. I know you have a lot of fuel left in the tank. This has been great to have you, Michael. Oh, thanks so much, Bob. I've been looking forward to it tremendously. I love everything you do. I read everything you say. And for the most part, agree. Okay. On that note, till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.